ahead with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamerica.com and voiceamerica.com women. Joining me this morning is Dr. Laura Berman and Lynn Barkley. We're going to be talking about STDs, how to talk to your partner. Dr. Laura Berman is a sex educator, a research researcher and therapist, and is a leader in the field of sexual therapy and is head of the Berman Center in Chicago, Illinois. Lynn, President Lynn Barkley, is president and CEO of the American Social Health Association. And uh, let's start. Good morning, ladies. How are you this morning? We're great. Good morning, ma'am. Good to talk to you. I understand uh, not only do we have both of you on the show this morning, but we have actual uh, people, individuals, Amy and Neil, who are suffering from STD. So we'll talk to them later on in the show. But let's start with you, Lynn. Um, STD, sexually transmitted diseases. I'm not sure that everybody knows exactly what they are. Oh, uh, well, some of them you would certainly know the names, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis. Uh, in the news recently, and a lot has been HPV. Herpes is an STD. I mean, there there are several. Uh, the good news is is that if you have an STD, they're um, they're all treatable. They're not all curable, but they're all treatable. And that's one of the reasons that we're having this campaign is that we worked with Novartis to do a poll to find out how people felt about and responded to uh, herpes diagnosis and found um, not exactly great news that 68% of people who have herpes are not do not feel comfortable talking to their family or friends about it and we want one of the things we want to do is just get it more on their radar so that people will understand that if you know that one in five sexually active adults has herpes one in five have herpes and that 90% of them do not know it then all of a sudden you start thinking of things in a different way. If you've got five people in the room, the likelihood is that one of you has herpes. All of a sudden you, you really need to not panic, get some information, you know, figure out how to talk to your partner, and then get on with life. And I think that Amy and Neil have done a great job of convincing us that, in fact, that is uh, not that hard. Yeah, I mean, there is enormous stigma attached to STDs. And uh, I think part of that also comes from the fact that we – Maybe as Americans deny that we're even having sex, you have to start there. So uh, I think that's also part of the problem. But this whole stigma thing is is right. something that prevents us from communicating. Now, when we're talking about numbers, 19 million Americans are diagnosed each year with an STD. Correct. Right, so it's, it's, it's a lot of people. Yeah. It's a lot of people to have that much stigma. So right. what are the symptoms? What are some of the symptoms? Let's talk about those first. What you know, you say that no, 90% of the people aren't getting help. Do we even know what the symptoms are? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, if you pay attention, you know your body, you're going to know that something's going on. Uh, your first outbreak, your primary is usually your worst because you just have no antibody load to fight that. You're going to have flu-like symptoms. Maybe even run a slight fever, headachey, a little upset stomach. But what you're really going to feel and look for is burning, itching, 
tingling. And certainly if you would see the end result, which would be the blister and the actual herpes lesions coming through, you're going to want to go to your doctor. And you also want to get help and talk about it. And that's the really cool thing about ASHA Health Groups. That is where my husband and I met and fell in love and realized that there's more going on in our life than just genital herpes. And we're talking to Amy right now. Yes, we are. Amy Bilek. Glad to be here. Great. Nice to have you on the show. All right. Now, is Neil your husband or? Neil is my husband. He's my husband now. We will uh, celebrate our third wedding anniversary this Tuesday. And it's something that after my diagnosis I thought was done and over with. Nobody was going to want me. I was all of a sudden unvaluable, unneeded, and just kind of um, not myself. Not myself. I needed to find myself again. Well, congratulations to both of you. And I also, uh, Dr. Berman, mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, what are the treatment options. I mean, right. what are the kinds of treatment options that were available or are available, and obviously were available to Amy and Neil. Um, what can we look for well, in terms I mean, of treatment? That's the exciting part is that there really are some great treatment options out there that aren't going to cure herpes but certainly are going to give you control over the outbreaks. And the other thing that this poll that Lynn was mentioning earlier, the ASHA poll, um, found that uh, 81% of respondents feel that they're in control of their condition, and that's really important because when they feel in control, their quality of life is better. They're more likely to get out there and date. They feel better about themselves. So there's a new treatment out there, Famvir, which is made by Novartis, um, ha- was just approved for episodic therapy. So it's one day of treatment that you take when you first feel those symptoms of an outbreak coming on, and the medication is thought to help shorten or perhaps prevent an outbreak, or has been found to shorten or perhaps uh, in, op- in, in many cases prevent an outbreak from occurring. So that gives people a tremendous amount of control over their symptoms. How important is it, Dr. Berman, to get, let's say, to get to you or to get to the physician when you first notice your symptoms? I mean, what happens if you just let it go by? Do the symptoms then go into remission or whatever, and, and then you, they, you don't experience them again? Or how, when should... I mean, obviously, you should go immediately, but what's the window of opportunity to right. put for treatment? Well, you can get you can get um, tested at any time. It does not have to be during an outbreak. And I encourage anyone who's sexually active or thinking about getting sexually active uh, to get a STD screen. Uh, go to your doctor and ask them to screen you for all sexually transmitted diseases, and make sure you ask them to screen you for herpes as well, because they won't necessarily automatically do that. Uh, and find out where you stand. Certainly, if you have many people, that the reason that 90% of people with herpes don't know that they have it is probably because they're, we believe it's because they're mistaking it for other things, whether it's a yeast infection or an abrasion or an irritation. So they don't realize what's going on, and then it eventually goes away, and then several months later or however long it takes, it comes, it comes back again. Some people get outbreaks every month. Some people just get a couple of times a year. So it really varies uh, from person to person. Yeah, and almost when you were describing the symptoms, it sounded like a urinary tract infection. Right, it could be that too. So it's very easy to mistake. That's why it's just always important to know what your sexually transmitted uh, infection history is and to also understand any potential partners and to have that conversation before you're sexual with them about what your STD history is and understand what, you know, make sure that they've been tested and find out what theirs is. But isn't the fear, I think, and Amy brought this up, you know, you tell somebody you're trying to establish a new relationship and you have to say, I have an STD. I mean, isn't the fear is I'm going to put a damper on this or the person's going to run away or walk away? That is the fear that, that keeps people from talking about it. And the important thing to keep in mind is 
<clears throat> and one in five uh, Americans walking around with genital herpes, <laughs> chances are uh, many people you know are walking around with genital herpes. Uh, the fear of talking about it, uh, it roots from this stigma, and what people don't realize is the solution is talking about it. Uh, my own experiences, sure, uh, when I was dating, I say I have genital herpes, sure, some of these women ran, but would these women have stuck around with any other major issue in my life? Probably not. Neil, how old were you when you were diagnosed or when you came down, when you, ha when you contracted genital herpes? I was do diagnosed at about 27 years old. Okay, because you're 27 years old, you're an adult, and uh, this question could be for all of you. What do you do about teenagers who's, and I don't know the statistics, who are under 18? Do they need permission from their parents to, to go and, and to be tested, or is it different in each state, or how does that work? Let's say you have a sexually active 16 or 17-year-old. Right. right. Well, uh, I have worked in an STD clinic before for many years, and I do believe that the age of consent is around 14 or 15, that you would have to have anybody younger than that have a parent or guardian with them. But the kids, when they come to the clinic, they'll just lie and say, I'm 18, because a lot of kids look 18 now, and they'll go in and get tested, but then they don't know what to do when they leave the clinic. So it's, I think it differs from state to state. I think you're um, right. But the main thing is that, you know, it's important for parents to have that conversation with their kids, to talk to them about sexually transmitted diseases, how to protect themselves, uh, to make sure they talk to them about testing. Uh, and most, uh, in most cities, you know, you can find resources. I know that Planned Parenthood, for instance, um, is a great resource in most communities for testing for sexually transmitted diseases. So um, that's a great resource for younger kids, too. So Planned Parenthood is one. Uh, and and our health, health department. And the health department is yes. another, yes. And and don't you think that, I, I think once you're diagnosed, and I, this doesn't apply just to teenagers, but to anybody, what about support groups? Don't you need some support groups, people to talk to? My husband and I met in an ASHA-sponsored help group. Um, I have the reputation as being the maddest woman to ever walk into support group, and Neil <laughs> has the reputation of being the maddest man to ever walk into support group. I don't know what we would have done without those people. The important thing is in the health groups, not only do you get information and support, uh, but you also uh, get a chance to learn about so many different treatments that maybe your general practitioner might not know too much about. And if you don't get treated, and this is probably a question for Dr. Berman, what happens in terms of fertility and those kinds of things? Um, I, I assume or I don't, it, it may affect your ability to, to uh, have children? No, it actually doesn't. Um, herpes is basically a, a skin condition. There's no major consequences of having it other than a significant, the one significant one is that they're not, they've now found that you're three times, if you have herpes, you're three times more likely to contract HIV if you're exposed to it. So if you have herpes, you're, you may be significantly more likely to get HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases. You also can give herpes to someone else, uh, transmit the virus to them. But there are no significant consequences beyond that in terms of pregnancy or quality of life um, or anything else. So, uh, so there are lots of myths out there about that, but I think that's one of the reasons that I think it's so important to talk about this because folks that... If you're one in one of the five, one in five Americans uh, who have this, um, then it's important to know that it's not a life-stopping uh, condition. Yeah, I think that 
as you say, treatable means manageable. It doesn't mean that you're going to be cured, but right. it does mean that the, that it is manageable. Right. Uh, not manageable unless you get treatment or seek treatment. Uh, uh, you know, there's a difference, isn't there, between herpes 1, and this is a confusion that, that uh, I've been asked this question a lot, like uh, herpes that you get like the cold sores on your mm-hmm. lips and then genital herpes different, or are they the same? Well, no, 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 it's two different viruses, and you're correct, uh, Herpes simplex virus 1 is generally found on your mouth, and uh, like 80% of adults have uh, oral herpes. They got it as kids when Aunt Sue gave them a kiss and had no idea that, in fact, she had herpes. Um, And HSV2, or herpes simplex virus 2, is generally on your genitals. It can go both ways. Um, yeah, my question is going to be, and we have to take a break right now, but if you have oral sex, can you transmit herpes Herpes one is that what it is? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> we could talk more about that after the break. Yeah, that was going to be a showstopper, and you already answered the question. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We'll take a break. All right. Fourteen minutes past the hour. Dr. Laura Berman, Lynn Barkley, Amy, and Neil, and I'm Catherine Sox on VoiceAmericaWomen.com. With you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. I have three children, and I've been raising my 16-year-old sister. Mary Gallagher and her family shared a two-bedroom apartment with eight people. Now Habitat for Humanity is helping her build a simple, decent, affordable home of her own. When we first found out that we were getting a Habitat home, it was like a dream. I kept saying, don't anybody wake me up. Not only is Mary helping build her own home, she'll buy it with a no-profit, zero-interest mortgage to keep it affordable. Habitat came out and built my home, and when Mary started building her house, I wanted to come out and give a hand. We're not just building Mary's house, we're building a neighborhood. There's several more to be built this year, and I look forward to working on each of their houses and seeing the joy of their face when they open the door to their brighter future. Habitat for Humanity. Building homes, changing lives. Support the work in your community. Visit Habitat.org. I feel very blessed. God has answered all of my prayers. We are home. Are you willing to be taught and invest a few minutes each week to learn principles that will ensure your success and fulfillment? Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to It's Easier Done Than Said on the Voice America Women's Channel. Radio that talks with you, not at you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. Good morning. And you are listening to Voice America, voiceamerica.com women talking 
I'm talking this morning with Dr. Laura Berman, sex educator, research therapist, and a leader in the field of sexual therapy. Lynn Barkley, who's president and CEO of ASHA, which is the American Social Health Association. STDs, How to Talk to Your Partner, and Amy and Neil are joining us this morning, too. They met at an ASHA support group and now married, and both of them were diagnosed with sexually transmitted diseases. So we have lots of information coming from a lot of different perspectives. But the question, I'm just going to mention it again, before we took the break was, you know, oral sex, if you can you transmit herpes 1 to, and herpes, if you have oral sex, can you transfer herpes one and two to your? To, it doesn't become. You have to explain this again because I'm not even. <laughs> That's what happened to me. I can't even say. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us again. If you have oral sex and you let's say that you have an active lesion on your mouth, so you have a cold sore, and you have oral sex, you can transfer that to someone's genitals. So you can have what's called herpes simplex virus one on your genitals. And you can't have it the other way around. Okay, that's clear. And, you know, I think it's an important point to make, and I make it because, as I understand it, and you can correct me, but statistically a lot of, and this is not a good thing, but a lot of these young, I call them children or preteens in middle school, are having oral sex because uh, they consider that not having sex. Right. Well, you are absolutely correct, and it's very much on the rise, and they think that they're being safer or safe because pregnancy can occur, and that's, that's true, but uh, they are not uh, knowledgeable enough to know that, in fact, there are other risks associated with that behavior. You know, we're talking about communication. Do you have any suggestions? How can, what can parents do? At what age do they bring up, do they start talking about STDs? Well, I think you have to start talking from, uh, you know, from, from birth, not about STDs, but about their bodies, about sexuality. It's, it's an ongoing conversation, and you should definitely be giving your kids a message that you're open to their questions, that you take advantage of teachable moments, whether it's something you see on TV or uh, something you see in the supermarket aisle in the magazines, that you're constantly having an ongoing dialogue with them. And you should be talking to them about sexually transmitted diseases well before adolescence and when their hormones are raging because you, very often at the point at which parents think they should be talking, their kids have already been sexual. One in five kids are um, having sex by the age of 15. Uh, so it's really important to have that conversation with your kids early. And whether you're an adult you know, or a teenager or whatever, it's always important um, to know about what the treatment options are. And in particular for adults, um, there are some interesting new developments in treatment. Famvir, for instance, was just approved for episodic therapy, which is one day of treatment, uh, which is new. So that means that when, some, when an adult feels that they have an outbreak coming on, um, they can take this one day of treatment, and it may actually stop the outbreak from occurring or shorten the outbreak. So that actually is a great resource uh, for folks. So the important thing to know is that if you're one, one of the one in five adults in this country who has herpes, um, that there are these treatment options available, and you can manage it. So, Dr. Raymond, what do we do? What about, you know, we tell parents and we tell, you know, everyone should be talking and, and uh, you know, communication is important about STDs. But what about all of those people, and, and I think there are a lot of them out there, who are really embarrassed, who, who can't see, who don't have, maybe they don't have the information, even if they do, it's too embarrassing to talk about STDs. Let's say parents, you know, we're saying they should do it. Yes, they should, but I know many who just can't do it. So where can they go to help, to get information and feel comfortable about giving this information to their children? Well, 
Go ahead. ASHA has a website specifically geared to teenagers, and it's I Wanna Know, I-W-A-N-N-A-K-N-O-W.org. It is specifically for and about teenagers. Uh, we have a lot of kids who go there every single day. It's a great resource, so send them there. You, you want to make sure as parents, I have no problem with, if you can't talk about it, help kids find the right place to get the information because the Internet is a wonderful and very difficult tool at the same time. There's wonderful information, but there's also highly wrong information and troublesome information on the Internet. So find good quality websites. Ash's website, as I say, iwantanow.org is a great opportunity to for you to learn. Maybe go go to the website together, see if you can... Find an opportunity to talk as you read it together. Maybe there, maybe that's the opportunity that you are not feeling right now. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a great suggestion. Sit down with your teenager or preteenager and go to the website, and it gives you a jumping off point for talking to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And educate yourself. I mean, in general, about herpes. Asha also has ashastd.org. Um, which is a great resource about, you know, about sexually transmitted diseases. You can go to genitalherpes.com and learn more, too. So there are several really good informational re- uh, Internet resources out there that can give you the information and, in many cases, the tools you need to have those conversations. Are the ASHA support groups, uh, such as the ones that you, Amy, and Neil went to, are they all over the country in every in major cities or there are there are several all over the country. I can't tell you exactly how many. I should know that off the top of my head. But uh, it, we periodically are contacted by people who say, you know what, I want to support start a support group in my community, which we're very supportive of. And then you would help them to do that. Absolutely right. Yeah. So if anyone's listening and you're interested in doing that, we can what call you, go to the website, or how do we make the contact? Uh, all of the above. Call us. And go to the website. <laughs> go to all. any of our websites. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the survey that Novartis just performed showed that 98% of the people, are, pardon me, 68% of the people who have genital herpes are not talking to anyone. They're not talking to their family. They're not talking to their friends. They feel very unsafe. They feel very uh, lost. And uh, a help group uh, pretty much saved me. Uh, I, there are some really odd thoughts that go through your head when you have a diagnosis of genital herpes. Talk. The stigma is that we were all having sex when we got this virus. And we're not talking about sex. So how can we start talking about herpes? And I'm going to throw another one in there because I think this is an issue, and, and, and these statistics aren't exact, but if, you know, also 50% of people who are married are having affairs. So uh, what do they and what, They're having affairs, they're having sex, they're getting STDs. How do you handle those kinds of situations? Right. Well, that's very tricky because you've got the double whammy of the infidelity and the impact that has on the relationship. And then if you bring a sexually transmitted disease into the relationship, obviously, you know, that's even worse. And, in fact, many people, since 90% of people with herpes don't even realize they have it, many people go into marriage with herpes, not realizing they have it, eventually it gets diagnosed, and then they're accused of infidelity. So it really does go both ways. Um, and the main thing is whether you're having an affair or whether you're not is to really know the sex, STD history of your partner, to know your own STD status, to make sure that you're both tested, ideally six months after your last sexual encounter, 
so that you know where you stand. And if you are, you know, God forbid, having an affair, um, you definitely want to at least have the respect for your mate to uh, protect yourself. And so I think that's really a responsibility that all of us have. If we're going to be sexual, we really have to be responsible about it. And in being responsible, that's as, as an individual, don't you think, uh, Dr. Berman and Lynn, that we also have to be responsible as a society? Maybe this should be just, shouldn't this be just routine testing that, let's say, women, when you start going to a gynecologist or even an internal medicine physician, that you get tested just automatically? Is this a good thing for annual exams? You know, it's a somewhat complicated subject. I know that the CDC does not re, um, recommend broad screening in, asympt- in the asymptomatic population, but I can tell you there are subgroups like the African-American population who has an incidence rate of one in two. And so ASHA is clearly communicating to that community that they need to know their status, uh, talk to their health care provider today if possible, um, so that they can make sure that they take care of themselves because if you have genital herpes, if you have herpes, you are three times more likely if exposed to HIV to contract HIV. So now, you know, what, what's happening is, is that we're learning more about these, the various interactions of these infections and realizing that it's not as simple in some cases as having herpes. Now we know we have to be more careful and always use a condom, use it correctly, um, you know, and take care of ourselves and our partners. We have, you're right. We have a societal responsibility in this. So, our, so in other words, we, or do we, do we define STDs as a public health issue? As oh. A- Oh, ASHA definitely does. Yeah, yes. ASHA does. And I think the public health community does, absolutely. Well, let's, we only have a couple minutes left, and I do want to make sure, I, I kind of like to repeat the numbers and the websites that listeners can go to for more information, because this has been great, really informative. But um, so let's, the, so the you want a recap? <laughs> a recap? <laughs> Let's give a recap of the score. Go ahead. Uh, so it, the websites to go to would be um, ashastd.org, iwantanow.com, right? No, .org. Sorry, iwantanow.org, uh, and then genitalherpes.com if you want to know more specifically about herpes. Um, and then, you know, remembering that one in five people, Americans in the general population who are sexually active, have herpes. Ninety percent of those who have herpes uh, don't know. Don't uh, berate yourself and judge yourself and allow the taboo to continue if you're one of those one in five Americans or even if you're not. And get tested uh, today for sexually transmitted diseases and make sure you're not sexually active with anyone um, until you know their STD history as well. And remember that there are treatments available, and there are some exciting new ones like this episodic therapy by Famvir that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think also, you know, that's also part of it besides the stigma people thinking, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's not treatable. It's not manageable. So I just maybe it'll just go away. Which I'll just ignore it. Yeah, I'll just ignore it. Exactly. Great having all of you on the show this morning, Dr. Laura Berman, Lynn Barkley, Amy, and Neil. Uh, good information, and uh, we thank you very much. Thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, it's 28 minutes past the hour. Lots of good information. We did repeat the numbers several times on the show, but uh, you can always call our 800 number if you want more information or if you didn't have a chance to write it down. You can call 866-472-5787. 
I'm Catherine Zox, and we were talking to Dr. Laura Berman, sex educator, researcher, leading leader in the field of sexual therapy, STDs, How to Talk to Your Partner, with Dr. Laura Berman and Lynn Barkley, who is president of ASHA. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Chat with Women reaches boomer women and their daughters. The concept is simple. It's the modern equivalent of having coffee with a million or so of our closest girlfriends. Chat with Women doesn't talk trash and it doesn't dish dirt. It's intelligent programming for intelligent women. Imagine that. Host Pam Gray and Rochelle Alhadif, fun-living women with enough life experience to go around, want to share their joy and knowledge of life with others. Plan to spend Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time with Pam and Rochelle on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you can't call mom, call Chat with Women. Real advice for real life from real women. And they keep their listeners laughing and learning with exciting interviews, live call-in sessions, and advice from two revolutionary baby boomers. Join Pam and Rochelle every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for Chat with Women here on the Voice America Women's Channel. Inner Health Through Homeopathy, hosted by Melissa Birch, CCH, with Dr. Tim Stryker. This show features a weekly discussion about homeopathy, a holistic approach to health care, which treats ailments by bringing the entire body into balance. Homeopathy encompasses and examines the makeup of the entire person instead of focusing solely on a disease or ailment. The healing process involves physical, mental, and emotional changes which come from a wellness within. Homeopathic remedies go far beyond an alleviation of symptoms. They can restore harmony to the body and open paths to a higher level of awareness. Each week, Melissa Birch, CCH, explores a different health issue and individual healing processes with Tim Stryker, MD. Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Inner Health Through Homeopathy. What would happen if you didn't follow the established path? Would you feel scared or proud? Could you explain that helping the people of Peru improve their own community would also have an effect on your own? Would you rather make your own way or spend a lifetime saying, what if? Life is calling. How far will you go? Peace Corps. To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or go to peacecorps.gov. Finally, radio that has real depth. Voice America Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
I'm Catherine Fox. Welcome back. Good morning. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com, Voice America Women. Joining me this morning is Deidre Barrett. She is a Ph.D. professor of psychology or assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and author of the new book, Wasteland, The Revolutionary Science Behind Our Weight and Fitness Crisis, and I think uh, the operative word here is crisis. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Deidre. Hi, nice to be here. Yes, uh, interesting book. When we talk about, <clears throat> I guess, it, well, first of all, why don't we mention the stats? Because, and I also want to talk. I have to. This is a great quote that you have in your book. Zoos across America post signs saying, "Don't feed the animals." We humans respect these orders, allowing veterinarians to prescribe just the right balanced diet for the lions, koalas, and snakes. Meanwhile, we stop for chips, soda, and hot dogs on our way out of the zoo. I mean, that says it all. Yeah, yeah, we really, we take better care of our animals than, than ourselves because we, we don't just think that whatever they might like the taste of best is, is what they ought to be eating. So what are the stats? What are the statistics in terms of Americans' overweight and obesity? Well, two-thirds of Americans are overweight, one-third are morbidly obese, and, and that is increasing. Um, I mean, my premise in Wasteland is basically that we're hunter-gatherers lost in a jungle of burgers, lounge chairs, and TV remotes, that we have these instincts about diet and exercise that evolve not for our modern setting but for hunter-gatherers on the savanna, and so we have all these signals telling us to eat as much fat as we can find and eat as much sugar as we can find and eat as much salt as we can find, and we can now just find unlimited amounts. So that was okay when we were on the savanna because they were limited amounts. Yeah, we, we needed looking for those things because it was possible to get none of them if we didn't put a lot of attention into them. And similarly, our instincts for exercise sort of tell us rest when you don't need to be moving because it was, you know, it, we got all the exercise we needed in the course of gathering food and finding shelter. And now we don't need to get much physical exercise. We work hard in some other senses, but not in the physical sense. And yet, again, our instincts are still like rest, conserve energy. So we really need to listen to our intellects now, not our instincts. Which is an interesting concept because most of the time we're always hearing, you know, from whether it's self-help groups or all of those kinds of things, well, just go with your gut, go with your instincts. So this is like completely the opposite, you're saying, uh, when it comes to making food choices. Yes, I don't think there is some convoluted neurotic explanation of why people seek out concentrations of fat and sugar. I think that's really in our instincts and, and that the, the simplest problem is that we used to be surrounded by all these green leafy vegetables and have trouble finding those things that we craved and now everything's reversed. And we do have these giant brains, and that's what they're there for, is overriding the instinctual signals. There's a really addictive, like, quality about these concentrations of fats and sugars. Well, that's our, you know, Deidre, like that's uh, Dr. Barrett, uh, our individual responsibility, but it always... I think about what about the responsibility of society because they sort of play on these instincts, don't they? I mean, they're putting you know, the McDonald's and the fast foods and, and, the, and the sugars, and, the, and they know that we're addicted to them. So yeah, how do and, and in, in the book, my last two chapters are the what to do in a real practical sense, and I've separated the two chapters out into what the individual should be doing within our current backwards environment 
and then a different chapter on more long-term what I think we ought to be lobbying to change. Because I do think an individual can swim against the tide. I, I think that that with some willpower, just staying away from the fast food places and the refined foods and getting back to eating natural foods is something that people can commit to and make a habit, and it gets easier as a habit. And and once you once you stop eating those those somewhat addictive foods, it really all of your hunger hormones and insulin and glucose levels adjust, and it does get easier. But there's still this pull out there, and I I don't think the advertisers or the fast food chains, you know, just evilly would rather us be eating these things that are bad for us. I think the the primary cause is instinctually those are the things that it's the easiest to sell us because we're craving them. But I think that, that there are things that societies can do, outright ban some things like trans fats and advertising junk food to children. And then there's a lot we can do to just without banning things to, to change the economic incentives. Right now we pay crop subsidies to farmers for growing things like corn that's going to be turned into corn syrup and lots of the crop subsidies go toward refined carbohydrates that we already have too many of and there are no crop subsidies for broccoli. So if we just shifted the agricultural subsidies, that the farmers get very anxious when you mention doing anything to crop subsidies, but I'm not suggesting that we cut them out. I'm suggesting that we attach them to healthy food. And I think you could tax some junk food. Some The, this, the anti-smoking campaign, I think, is really a good model for how to change some of the social things. We, we finally turned that around after years of people knowing that cigarettes killed and yet acting like we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, I think that is a good example, and I, I think that because uh, you talk about this in the book too, though we have to deal with what you call the food lobbyists. I mean, that is an issue in Washington. Yes, and I again, I think that whether you're talking about the farmers or the middle level and top businessmen, that we're not trying to kill off American agriculture or business. We're just trying to change the economic incentives to make it healthier for them to be selling, more profitable to be selling. Dr. Barrett, you talk about in your... Do I still have you on the line? Yeah, but I, I hear a... I hear a dial tone. Very yeah, I hear a dial tone, too. I don't know where it's coming from. But... Uh, yeah, I hear that, but I can hear you. So I can I hear you, too, so we'll keep talking. Uh, or we'll take a break. We can take a short break and come back and see if we can get rid of this dial tone. Uh, because I, I do want to talk about in the book, you, you mentioned what you call... Supernormal stimuli, which is, I think is an interesting phenomenon that we respond to. Uh, what are supernormal stimuli? That's a term that I sort of borrowed it from the book. From It's a term that Nico Tenbergen, who won a Nobel Prize for animal ethology, he coined it to refer to some, some effects mainly in animals. But a supernormal stimulus is something that pulls an instinct even more powerfully than the natural thing that it was developed for. And his examples were things like birds that lay tiny pale blue eggs that are dappled with gray spots don't have an instinct for what their own egg is in some gestalt sense. They they recognize blueness and spottedness, and the larger the egg, the healthier it's likely to be. So he could make these big fake plaster eggs that were bright day glow blue and had big black polka dots 
and were several times larger than the bird's egg, and the bird would sit on that in preference to its own egg because it looked more egg-like to it than a real egg. And that's what our foods are like. A cheeseburger or French fries or candies or a big slice of chocolate cake have more of the signals of fat and sweet and the visual signals that cue us this is this is food than real natural foods do. And so they actually pull our instincts harder than what we're supposed to be eating. So I think that's a very important concept that, that it tells us what can get off about instinctually encoded things when we get in an artificial environment. Yeah, I think it's a very important concept because it has, all has to do, obviously, I mean, the marketing in the grocery stores, and you mentioned this in the book, another example of what you're talking about, about these um, super normal stimuli, like why do people buy berry-flavored jello instead of buying the actual mm-hmm. berries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's because one is the super normal stimulus. And I think what what we really need to translate that into is, is to listen to our intellects. I mean, willpower has become almost a dirty word these days, but all it really means is resolutely following through on decisions without getting derailed by short-term temptations. And, I mean, what else do we want to be doing? I think the most generous interpretation of why people don't like the idea of willpower anymore is that if people possess little, they'll just feel bad about themselves. But even if willpower were a set trait, it would be good to know how much you had so you would know how much you needed to avoid tempting situations. But actually, it turns out that willpower is not that set a trait, that the more you practice it, the stronger willpower gets. And there's a lot of new brain research on how habits form. We can really see habits at work in the brain. Basically, when when you perform some habitual behavior, your basal ganglia deep in your brain are firing the commands once you've memorized some routine. But if you're if you're traveling a new route or trying to to decide which of some things to do, this this upper brain area called the prefrontal cortex is busy. That's where you make decisions and problem solve. And so with dieting, the first stage is to re-engage the prefrontal cortex and think through, no, I don't want to just get the ice cream like I always do. I want to get the piece of fruit as I go through the cafeteria line. But you don't want to stay in that upper brain area forever either because that takes so much energy that that we want to just stick very consistently to the new habit, and then it all shifts back into the sort of automatic pilot of the lower brain center. So some of the diet advice is kind of, it doesn't matter if you slip, reward yourself with a dessert once a week. But it does matter. And that that really does derail it. Both physiologically, it gets insulin and glucose off so that it's biologically harder to stick with the diet the next day. But also in terms of these habit things we now understand about the brain, it just moves it to processing it in a different brain center if you're not consistent about it. So consistency really does matter a lot. Yeah, and you are so right. And I have to tell you, I haven't had a Big Mac since 1987. Congratulations. <laughs> so I t- you are so right. I mean, we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy kinds of techniques. With, I agree with you. They really do work. Anyway, we do have to take a short break. Uh, we are talking to Dr. Deidre Barrett and uh, her new book, Wasteland, The Revolutionary Science Behind Our Weight and Fitness Crisis. We'll be back in a minute. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zoss, your social worker with a microphone.
talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. If you are among the millions who are on the quest to find the fountain of youth, then this is the program for you. Dr. Norm Shealy brings to Internet Talk Radio, Youthful Aging, Secret of the Fountain, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 12 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Dr. Shealy's mission is to help you have optimal health and longevity, and the purpose of Youthful Aging is to give you an opportunity to ask your own questions about anything related to health, and everything is related to health. Each week, Dr. Shealy will focus on a particular health topic and welcome Welcomes your questions, which are the reason for the program. Tune in every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 12 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Youthful Aging, Secret of the Fountain with Dr. Norm Shealy. And discover for yourself the secret of the fountain. Are you willing to be taught? And invest a few minutes each week to learn principles that will ensure your success and fulfillment? Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to It's Easier Done Than Said on the Voice America Women's Channel. Winning with Wellness, where beauty meets health, with Dr. Vidushi Babber, is a place where women can share their health and beauty tips and learn that wellness means having a positive self-image. Tune in every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome back. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com and VoiceAmerica.com Women. Joining me this morning has been Dr. Deidre Barrett. She's the or an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, and author of Wasteland, the revolutionary science behind our weight and fitness crisis. And your actually your your whole premise and um, the response to uh, uh, Dr. Barrett to actually getting us to change our habit is re- our habits are. Evolutionary and revolutionary. I think your book is both. But uh, before we took the break, we're talking about the fact uh, how to do it exactly. So, what do you do? How do we, you know, if, we're, if we we go after sugars and, and salts in our diets, which obviously are not good for us, that's instinctual. Got to get rid of the instincts and think with our brains. And we do that by reprogramming ourselves through the process of cognitive behavioral techniques. Yes, I mean, I think in terms of what to do, making kind of radical changes, that moderate changes won't do it, but also radical changes are biologically easier to just cut out refined foods, especially simple carbohydrates, and, and glucose levels really normalize. So, so the what to eat is the, the very standard advice, fish, lean meat, or if you're a vegetarian, some other concentrated protein, and vegetables and fruit. But the, the how to, 
some people just getting the message that it's really important and the shortcuts aren't going to do it can get them motivated. But if you need some extra help, the, the two techniques that, that really have the best effect are cognitive behavioral techniques. And I have some simple ones in Wasteland that you can do on your own, but also if you're finding you need more help, going to some short-term therapy for that. All right, Kim, let's talk about a couple of the simple ones, the real practical how-to. The, well, what, what, I, what I talk through in the, the chapter on individual change is it's going through what some of your automatic assumptions are. They're, they're a list of some common ones, and, and some people will recognize some of this. I'm, I'm, it's genetic. I'm just built that way. Um, I you know, there's no diet I'm going to lose weight on. Some people don't 100% believe that, but they're really sort of telling themselves that at, at the time that they don't make the eating change. And so really double-checking some of these, you know, I, I need to keep candy around in case company drops by. Really reality testing, you know, and is you your know company really in And the one I hear the most, Dr. Bear, especially because yes. I'm a baby boomer, is the medication. Well, I'm on medication, which makes me gain weight. And, you know, even though they've gained 30 or 40 pounds, uh, it's, they relate it to the medication they're taking. I find that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I mean that the, the cognitive behavioral just talks you through: is this real? If it's real to a certain extent, does it make it impossible or just more difficult? Is there something you can change about this? I mean, the medication effects can be real, but again, the real effect is it stimulates your appetite somewhat more. It does not make it impossible to diet, or you know there's some other medication for your disorder, and you haven't gotten around to asking your physician if you might switch and try this thing that's not as associated with, with stimulating appetite. I mean, there, there's always a logical thing to do, but and the cognitive behavioral therapy just kind of gets you around stopping at, at the maladaptive thought as an excuse that stops you from the diet and following through on either replacing it with something more logical or acting on its, you know, its obvious implication. And so then there, there are practical things you can do on your own, and like you say, if, if it's beyond that and you need help, then you can go to a therapist to help you. Yeah, some short-term therapy can definitely help. The, the, the one thing I think is not helpful, though, is the sort of long-term, you need to change your character, personality, or underlying neuroses before you can diet. I mean, if you're anxious or depressed, yeah, it's going to be harder to stick with a diet, but it's it's not the underlying cause. And I, to, I want to give you a personal example because I, I think this yes. is, you are so on target. You were just so right about this. It's like, you know, when we started having to wear seat belts, or at least I remember when we first did, and it wasn't just, it wasn't, it wasn't instinctual. You trained yourself to put on a seat belt. Now you get on in a car and you feel uncomfortable if you're not wearing the mm-hmm. seat belt. Most yeah. people do. Yeah, ha- habits are, habits are very strong and, and we feel like our bad habits are just unchangeable. They're such a part of ourselves, but, but the, the physiologic aspects of this change within days of eating right, and the, the habit aspects change in about three weeks or so if you're really consistent. Yeah. So you start feeling good, and then, I mean, everything sort of works on it. I guess there's good feedback from the external and the in, internal, um, but it's sort of like I would never buy, a, I don't buy processed food, and then mm-hmm. I, I feel guilty if I do buy it or if I do eat it, and I don't, and I don't have it in my house, and it does become a habit, as you're saying. Yeah, and it, it makes it so much easier when it's not there sitting around just in case you want to feed this to to company. That that makes it so much harder. 
to actually stick to a diet. Yeah. All right. Now let's we uh, we do have to get into exercise too because isn't that part of the whole picture? I mean, you uh, that exercise. You say exercise is not instinctual. I I think that our strongest instincts are are actually toward resting when we don't have to be exercising. That 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 is actually a stronger. There's certain situations in which things get our attention or stimulate us to move. We have some natural instincts toward exercise. I think we have stronger ones in more situations toward rest because in our natural setting we so automatically had to get the exercise in the course of getting other things and we we could back in our ancestral setting get ourselves too tired but the modern setting has really really reversed right, so and you I talk think in the book yeah, about how to use our intellect to get so that we use yeah our to remind ourselves that that we we want to get to the gym or there's certainly enjoyable aspects of exercise but they often come once we're doing it and i i sort of talk about the the three main routes to getting more exercise are for people who used to be pretty athletic in their youth and have kind of gotten away from that again there's usually some cognitive behavioral oh i'm just too old to do this or that but i think that taking back up a sport that you really loved or maybe shifting from softball from baseball to softball or, you know, some some age-appropriate version of what you used to do is really easy and fun for people who ever were kind of athletic and liked sports. But for the kind of people who never, never, never liked to exercise, I do think that our modern health clubs are pretty good at getting people motivated with if, if you don't enjoy the exercise per se, you'll enjoy some of the social aspects. If you just walk yourself into the start of a one-hour exercise class, you're not going to just sit down and not do it the way you might at home if you were starting an exercise hour. You know, or just walk into the gym and walk around the, the track for a quarter of a mile. Yeah, and just start there. get yourself there and you'll exercise for a while, and there's a lot of social reinforcement for it. So I think... I think that gyms and health clubs are really good for people who didn't used to like exercise to to sort of add some reinforcements. And then I also talk about ways that people that think they're stuck in a desk job can often build a lot more exercise into into their workday while while still doing the same sort of career, but just not doing quite as much of it from your desk. Yeah, great advice. I just got back from Australia. What they do in Sydney, they have 25-yard swimming pools situated around the city, and that's what uh, workers do when they go on their lunch break, take Mm -hmm. a swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a a swim or a racquetball court or something for lunchtime. But but there's some settings where more and more people, instead of the just sit down to have a conference discussion, can... You know, three people can go for a walk while they're discussing business. And and there's some work settings where that's already becoming a, a common thing. But even where it's not, you'll find if you suggest that to some coworker, instead of set it, you know, sitting around, why don't we talk a walk as we talk about this, you, you'll generally get a somewhat enthusiastic response. Yeah, so you just have to be a little creative. It doesn't have to be expensive, and it doesn't have to be this extreme sport. Well, I could keep talking. We have to. It's, we only have a minute left, and I do want to make sure that listeners know you can purchase your book, Wasteland, The Revolutionary Science Behind Our Weight and Fitness Crisis, online, Amazon.com, where you've got great reviews. Love the book, and it was really great having you on the show hey, today. And it's W-A-I-S-T land. So yeah, W, that's right. <laughs> 
We didn't say that in the beginning. Yeah. W-A-I-S-T, land, wasteland. Thanks so much, Dr. Okay, Barrett. great talking to you. Great to talk to you, too. Uh, well, we've reached the end of the hour. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. You're a social worker with a microphone on voiceamerica.com, voiceamerica.com women. Have a great day, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>